Hello and welcome to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast, a podcast that focuses on our distinct approach to this amazing system of understanding human nature. My name is Mario Sakura, coming to you from Philadelphia, and I'm joined by Maria Jose Munita. Hello from Santiago, Chile. And Tamar Zanati. Hello from Cairo, Egypt. We are partners at Awareness to Action International, a consulting firm specializing in practical applications of the Enneagram. You can find out more about our work at awarenesstoaction.com. In this season of the podcast, we are focusing on exploring each of the three instinctual biases and nine strategies through the lens of a movie, looking at one movie that we feel represents the essence of the bias or type. So make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the program. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. We're going to the mattresses with this episode of the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. This is season one of the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. And we are moving with this episode from the instinctual biases to the nine strategies. And we're doing it in a big way. We're doing it with the movie The Godfather and talking about Enneagram Type 8. We're excited about this. The Godfather is certainly one of my favorite movies. It's a movie that we talk about a lot between the three of us and even use clips of it during our uh, training programs. So uh, let me ask you, Maria Jose Tamar, are you guys as excited about this podcast as I am? I am so excited about it. I also remember the times that we went to the restaurant of Coppola in San Francisco. I mean, I mean, this is in the background while watching the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I am very excited. Not sure that anyone can be as excited as you are about the movie, but <laughs> very excited. I really like the movie. Yeah, so I think, you know, this kind of makes a, a good opportunity uh, talking about my excitement for this movie. I think it uh, is, is a good opportunity for us to mention our biases and what we each bring to each of these uh, discussions about the different types, the different instinctual biases, right? We saw that when we talked about the instinctual biases in the movies, how our own biases influenced the way we thought about these things. And we all have our own interpretations and our own reactions to Enneagram type eights. And I think it's important to point out that I am an Enneagram type eight, and that will certainly influence my reaction to this movie. Uh, but I'm curious with the two of you, how you think your biases affects your understanding of the Enneagram type eight and your reaction to this movie. I've watched it several times. And in this last time, in, pre in preparation for the podcast, I was thinking, Okay, so now it's not, not just entertainment, but we're using these to show things about the uh, strategies. And although I really like what happens in the movie, even if there's violence and all of that, I, I enjoy it. There was something about, what should we say about AIDS? That they're all not, not all mobsters, you know, or uh, <laughs> that not every eight likes to kill people, you know? So as a type one, I was thinking about the message we were going to send and how we needed to be careful in terms of the good and bad, the right or wrong in the movie. So that's an interesting point. And before I ask you, Tamara, to answer the same question, this idea of right or wrong certainly permeates the movie. 
but it's a you know it's a group of really amoral characters right um you know i don't know that i'd call them immoral necessarily although one could make that argument but it's the amorality the lack of conventional moral codes that i think permeates the characters i mean my experience with the eights are different and and i think it's the same with different people with different preferred strategies it really depends on uh, how healthy is the relationship so so i mean i had bad experience with eights and i have very good experiences with eights for this specific movie i i love the movie since long time i've watched it uh, like i mean not like you maria i'm i'm, I'm sure that you are you're having a record in watching the movie but i watched it uh, many times and uh, i think the 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 uh, the scriptwriter uh, mario pozzo and uh, coppola the director made a great work in uh, romanticizing the mafia really making the characters uh, likable somehow that you really relate to and uh, and you can really forgive forgive their immorality somehow so they did a great job in that so yeah. i like i mean most of the characters especially the ones that uh, the 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 the, uh, the script and uh, the direction made them likable yes uh, this is kind of the ultimate anti-hero movie right of uh, you find yourself rooting for people who are arguably bad people right i mean you know even vito who's i think the most likable of the main character the, the the most sympathetic is a murderer right and you know sonny's a guy and spoiler alert here but if you haven't seen this in godfather 2 well then shame on you but uh, you know uh, michael is a guy who kills his brother at the end right and sonny uh, you know sonny's never met anybody he didn't want to kill so so yeah absolutely we find ourselves drawn to these characters in a, in an interesting and strange sort of way yeah, I think that the complexity of the characters makes it more interesting to me. It might be that they're bad people or doing bad things. I, I, I'm not sure that there's really bad people, but they do bad things. And the way in which we can see how they're feeling and how they react and how and all the insights they have and uh, how they play the politics. And it's just fascinating to me. Yeah. And uh, they're just human beings and not not in every movie you can see that level of complexity i think and that makes it enjoyable to me yeah i think it's important to point out that we are talking about a piece of art here i mean this is arguably the greatest movie ever made if you look at the lists of all-time great movies it's usually near the top uh, if not at the top um, you might see citizen kane you might see casablanca there's really you know, it's it's hard to top this as a film that captured both artistic excellence and fun, engaging storytelling. Right, uh, and uh, I don't know if either of you have read the book that this is based on. It's a fun book to read, right? And, and in fact, it's very similar, obviously, but there are some key differences. For example, Luca Brazzi, who kind of plays in in the movie, is kind of a lovable, goofy sort of guy is a really evil human being in the book right and also i find that uh vito culione played by marlon brando is much more likable and interesting in the movie than he is in the book so 
Uh, so Coppola really took this to a new level, right? I mean, this movie, this really is an excellent, excellent movie. We're using this, like, like we've said in the other podcasts, we are not focusing on a particular character to illustrate the instinctual bias or the Enneagram type. We're talking about the theme of the movie as a whole, the, the gestalt of the movie, if you will. And certainly that comes across here. This movie, I mean, it's just about eightness, right? I mean, it's about power. It's about lust and you know, all of these things. It's about vengeance, for sure. And at the same time, it gives us great examples of characters who are very well-drawn Enneagram type eights. Okay? And in fact, and I don't know if this comes up in any of the other movies that we'll be talking about, but we have really vivid examples of all three subtypes of the uh, type eight in this movie. And we'll talk about that toward the end of the session, okay? So with Enneagram type eight, oh, go ahead, Maria, did you wanna say something? No, all right. No, so, that's um, just eight everywhere. I mean, power yeah, everywhere, in yeah, every, yeah. Uh, maybe not every scene, but could be, you know? Yeah, <laughs> except for poor Fredo, right? You know, poor Fredo. Um, Lack yeah. of power. <laughs> yeah, you know, not not certainly not a type eight, but uh, I, I I think I, I think an argument could be made for the sister throwing a blank one right now. How could that possibly be? Connie. Connie, yes, thank you. I, she could arguably be a type eight, and uh, if you read the book, the mother, even uh, Vito's wife, is a type eight. She's a tough tough person. So uh, anyway, so let's talk about the type eight. Okay, so the classical enneagram looks at a few fundamental ideas okay so we have this idea of a vice that each type is is based on and that vice for the enneagram type eight is lust okay this desire this single-minded desire for something we also have what's called the fixation this mental pattern that the eight can't get out of or that it can get stuck in and that is vengeance and the virtue at point eight is innocence, you know, letting go of that. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, uh, how did you guys see lust in this movie? Were there any vivid examples of lust in a, <laughs> in, in, in a variety of ways, right? Uh, uh, you know, there was certainly Sonny with his, um, you know, that, uh, that girl he's been doing all that comedy with, as, as, as his father says. Uh, but what other ways do you see lust? I think it's everything. To me, lust, it's also like this desire to live the experiences in a kind of fully and take it to the extreme and everything. And many things are like that. And I'm going to the end of the movie, but the baptism scene, it's lustful in terms of killing, you know? Yes, uh, yes. The, so it's not just sex or romance, it, it's everything. That could be uh, lustful. You know, the the, the uh, wedding, the beginning of the movie. It's full of music and food and and everything. So so it's. Yeah. I don't know. There are many places where we can see that. Yes, I, yeah, it's a great point about the wedding. I mean, even Clemenza when he's dancing and he stops, he says, "Hey, Polly, Polly, bring me a drink, right?" And Polly brings him a whole pitcher. <laughs> of sangria right and you know and clemens is drinking from the pitcher you know not just the glass so so absolutely and then paulie's looking at the uh, the gift bag that connie is collecting and saying oh thirty thousand dollars in small bills you know that lusting for the money and so forth so so great examples okay. 
um, the fixation is vengeance. And if there's, uh, yeah, so, so Tamara, any examples of vengeance stand out for you in the, in the movie? Any example that does not have vengeance in the movie, <laughs> I, I think that would be, a, I mean, I mean, when you look at the uh, scene of the, of the horse, uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, head of the horse, that, that's like, it's like the, uh, the top of the, of the mountain of vengeance. So it's like uh -huh. really, uh, dead heart it's like cold-blooded uh, when you see the uh, baptism uh, scene i mean it's very cold-blooded vengeance uh, like uh, i would really i mean like uh, michael corioni saying to the whole mafia i will really show you what i can do and they do it without even blinking my uh, my eyes so it's, i think it's everywhere even the scenes where uh, santino is hitting uh, is, be is beating, yeah, is beating uh, the uh, husband, husband of his uh, sister, uh, and so on. It's really, yeah, uh, it's like, it's really like he kept on uh, hitting him. I mean, the guy already lost conscious and kept on hitting him. So it's really, it's like I really would like to take this energy out of me into really a full vengeance somehow. So yeah, it's everywhere. It's all over. <laughs> and and I think that even when it's not taking place, it's hanging kind of, it's part of the power they have. So if you do not do what I want you to do, I'll take revenge. You know, it's part yes. of the power that I have. So it's everywhere, even when, it, even when it's kind of silent. So that's, it's an interesting quality because the, uh, this idea of vengeance in the Enneagram Type 8, um, it's really, it's, it's not the vengeance that's the motivation. It's what vengeance accomplishes. And it's usually this idea of getting back on top, right? Getting back into power. It's power that motivates the eight. It's this desire to feel powerful. And if you've been slighted by someone, if you have been, you know, made low in some way by someone taken advantage of, then you don't feel powerful anymore. So the mental pattern of vengeance serves the eight the purpose of getting back on top, right? So if you hit me once, I'm going to hit you twice, right? And, uh, you know, and then we'll escalate from there. So this is, uh, this is where vengeance comes in for the eight. Now, innocence, right? So there are some very interesting moments of innocence uh, in the movie laid out. Uh, I saw the most in, uh, in, the, in Vito, played by Marlon Brando. Maria Jose, tell us about that. Again, it's this complexity that I was talking about. It's revealed also in how they want to kill someone, but then they are innocent in terms of, I don't know, caring about the people, their family especially, and also thinking that they're good, doing what's right, you know, like in an innocent way. It's, it's, there's this quality of innocence that it's there even when they're doing bad things. <laughs> you know, it's, right. So it's not just the typically innocent scene, but it's this conflict that they have inside or this contradiction. Most of the time when they are innocently taking care of the, their loved ones by shooting people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you make a really good point about the, uh, the complexity of people, Maria Jose. And certainly we see that with the eight. We see it with all the Enneagram types, but it's, uh, it's very vivid with the eight because I think the, the, the contradictions are so extreme in the eight, right? 
you know, we often describe the eight as a, um, a teddy bear inside of a grizzly bear, right? And uh, so even in the opening scene, when we see Marlon Brando sitting at the desk, metering out justice, right? And, you know, plotting the, uh, you know, attacks on different people, he's playing with a kitten, right? And that was actually a, um, an improvisation by Marlon Brando. He, he, they had found this cat on the uh, studio lot, and Brando <laughs> said, hey, it'd be yes. great to show Vito you know, playing with a kitten while he's, he's doing this scene. Uh, so you see there's another place. You see it in Vito playing with his grandson at the end of the movie right before he dies, that, uh, that warmth and innocence that you see in the character. Now, again, we talked about the classical Enneagram with the vices and virtues and so forth. The awareness to action approach takes a little bit of a different approach to describing these things, right? We always talk about how, you know, because a lot of the work that we do in organizations, we really don't want to go in and talk about the lustful type or, you know, the vengeful type or something like that. So we use this idea of strategies that is driving what's at the heart of each one of these Enneagram types. And the strategy we identify for type eight is striving to feel powerful. And again, I would argue that this movie is all about power. Okay, it's all about how do I uh, get control now? Power is the capacity to produce a result, right? And if you know the story of The Godfather, Vito comes over to uh, the United States and you know um, as a child in probably the nineteen. 19- ends or so, I, I forget exactly the date, but comes into a community where there's not a lot of justice, yeah. that the there's kind of a street justice that goes on. And this was the rise of, you know, the, the, the legend is that it was the rise of the mafia um, to kind of protect, but quickly grew into something that was, uh, you know, far more sinister. Uh, regardless, it is all about Vito trying to accumulate power. And there's a great line towards the end of it uh, at the end of the movie where he talks about how, you know, I never want it to be, uh, how does he put it? I've written it down here somewhere. Now I can't find it, but. No, I refuse to be a fool dancing on the strings held by all those big shots. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I had written that in my notes and I can't find it now, but yeah, absolutely. I don't want anybody to control me, which means that I have to do the controlling. Now, the problem with this is that it never really works out that way, right? There's always, you know, some problem. There's always some fly in the ointment. And we realize that nobody can really control everything. So um, this idea of power is the fundamental theme. We do talk about the connecting points of the Enneagram. So um, we don't, when we talk about eights, we don't just talk about the strategy of striving to feel powerful, but we talk about their very specific relationship to the strategy at point two of striving to feel connected. And we talk about how there's kind of this cognitive distortion around that strategy. And so the eight has a tendency to neglect the strategy of striving to feel connected because it feels threatening in some way, right? Uh, if I connect to people too easily, it becomes a burden. And it's not just, you know, I, I think that a lot of times people, when they talk about AIDS, they start to talk about how it's, well, they don't want to be vulnerable because they're not in touch with their emotions and all this other sort of stuff. But there's more to it than that. Right? And, and I think, again, the opening scene illustrates this. Connection for an eight involves obligation. 
right? If I am connected to you, you are under my protection. And I have to make sure you are worth the effort. So, I, you know, I think we could touch on that a bit more when we come back and talk honored, Tanner. Yeah. Yeah. Don't ever, don't don't overestimate the value I place on either one of you. You know, know, as as soon as you cease to be useful to me, you'll be sleeping with the fishes, right? I know. The other connecting point, (laughs) speaking of which, uh, is at point five, striving to feel detached. Yeah, with that strategy, and it's it's the support strategy for type A, and it's kind of what the eights use in support or in addition to reinforce the strategy of striving to feel powerful. And to me, the phrase, uh, it's not personal, it's business. It's kind of a really good way to demonstrate that, to illustrate the detachment. It's, you know what? Don't take it personal. It's not emotional. This is business. Yes. Kind of trying to convince themselves of that, trying to justify their emotional impulses and all that. But but still, it's kind of a desire to take a distance and see things as a business. It makes it easier for me to do the hard things that yeah. I feel like I have to do or that I want to do to get what I want if I just treat it as business. And I don't know if either of you saw the movie You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, yeah. where there's a lot of quotes from The Godfather in that, the, the, the Tom Hanks character. And he uses that line. And her response is, well, it's personal to me. <laughs> which is the thing that the eight forgets, right? Yeah. Hey, it's only business to me, but that doesn't negate the pain that you feel, unfortunately. Yeah. We have these um, these connecting points. The, uh, the eight is the preferred strategy, meaning it's the one that they use um, the most, tend to neglect this strategy of point two, striving to feel connected. And they use as a support strategy, the strategy of... Uh, striving to feel detached. Awareness to Action offers a unique approach to applying the Enneagram professionally with leaders and organizations as well as for personal development. What makes us stand apart is our Enneagram expertise and focus on understanding human nature. We know people because we see people. And this is a skill set that can be taught and learned. Human nature is complex and simple at the same time. Our mission is to help people see clearly and act accordingly. Why? Because the ability to see ourselves and others clearly and honestly is essential. It enables us to act in more adaptive and useful ways. The multicultural team and awareness to action will help you learn tools and practices to become more aware, and also to understand and engage people more effectively. Learn more at awarenesstoaction.com. Join us at 2021 for exciting learning opportunities. Okay, so we're talking about The Godfather. If you have not seen the movie, please pause this podcast right now and go watch the movie and rejoin us in three hours and listen to the end. Um, But uh, again, we are going to give away spoilers because this movie is... 48 years old and uh if you haven't seen it yet it's not my fault so um uh, a couple of things uh, the godfather again like we said is arguably the greatest movie of all time um 
some people who don't agree. Uh, it was released in 1972. It starred Marlon Brando, who won the Academy Award for um, as best actor that year for his portrayal of Vito Corleone. And um, so it's just, uh, just a few notes here I found on IMDb. Uh, widely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time, this mob drama based on Mario Puzo's novel of the same name focuses on the powerful Italian-American crime family of Don Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando. When the Don's youngest son, Michael Al Pacino, reluctantly joins the mafia, he becomes involved in the inevitable cycle of violence and betrayal. Although Michael tries to maintain a normal relationship with his wife, Kay, played by Diane Keaton, he's drawn deeper into the family business. Now, if ever there has been an inadequate summary of a movie, uh, that is it, right? I mean, you know, I mean it's just <laughs> there is so much more to this movie, so much that's happening. But how do you describe it? It's about a crime family and the, the, you know, the youngest son's desire to stay out of it by being pulled in. Um, so written by Mario Puzo, as we said, released March 15, 1972. In addition to being one of the greatest movies ever made, it was the most, it earned the most money of any movie up until Jaws, which came a few years later. So at the point it was released, it uh, made a $135 million off of a $6 million budget. The long movie, about three hours. And ironically, uh, this movie was made because the movie studio Paramount decided that it wanted to make pulp kind of movies. It wanted to make simple kind of action, engaging movies that people didn't have to think too much about. So they bought this book from Mario Puzo, and uh, they hired Francis Ford Coppola to make it. He did not want to make the movie, but he owed Paramount a lot of money from um, a, a flop from an earlier movie. So he went and made the movie. Uh, the other stars of the movie, Al Pacino, who plays Michael Corleone, James Caan, who plays Sonny, Richard Castellano as Clemenza, Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, and one of my favorites playing Solozzo is Al Lettieri. Al Lettieri was a fairly little known actor, uh, but you know, with this movie, he went on to make a couple of other movies. He played one of the great heavies in the early 70s, he was also in movies, uh, The Getaway with Steve McQueen, where he plays a chilling criminal. And he was also the bad guy in one of my all-time favorite movies, Mr. Majestic with Charlie Charles Bronson. So uh, those are a couple of movies you can check out to get more of Al Lettieri. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 98% score, uh, with the audience score of also 98%. I want to know who those 2% are that uh, didn't like uh, the, the Godfather. A couple of reviews. Uh, Pauline Kael, a famous new, uh, movie critic for The New Yorker, says, if ever there was a, gr a great example of how the best popular movies come out of a merger of commerce and art, The Godfather is it. So there's an interesting review here that I, I'd like your the, the opinion from the two of you on. A well-known movie critic at the time said, I don't see how any gifted actor could have done less than Brando does here. His resonant power, his sheer innate force has rarely seemed weaker. So he panned uh, Brando's performance here. What do you guys think of Brando's performance? I would say, that, I, mean, I mean, for me, that was one of the best roles that uh, um, Brando has done, especially that he played uh, an age that is not his real age. Uh, it was, I mean, 
probably 15 years older or more at least or at maybe least, 20. yeah he was uh, 48 yeah. when he and filmed he, he this changed movie. his voice he changed his facial uh, uh, features uh, and i read something like he used to put cloth inside his uh, his mouth in order to look uh, this way like uh, uh, different uh, fa facial uh, features and he was really great i mean it's very impactful even the very subtle uh, uh, movements like in the uh, meeting with Salozzo, uh, like uh, putting his hands on his uh, pants it's it's really it's like he's giving messages with every small move that he does during acting so i think on the contrary he did a great job yeah i, I think that i i agree it might be that he's not the stereotypical kind of transmitting character, asserting himself, kind of clearly asserting himself. I think that he's more political, he's more strategic. There's more to what he doesn't say many times than, uh, than what he says. And, and that might not be appreciated by some people. I agreed. Um, Tamar, to your uh, point about the things in his mouth, he actually showed up at the um, audition with gauze in his mouth because he felt that Vito should look like a bulldog. So that's what he was trying to achieve. And then for the movie, they built him a uh, prosthetic so he didn't have to keep putting cloth in his mouth for, for the movie itself. But yeah, so he transferred. I, I think it was a pretty incredible performance. And I think, I know that Al Pacino was very upset that even though he's in more of the movie, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor rather than Best Actor, uh, which I don't think he won um, that year. Anyway, so I, I think it was a great performance. So what else? A uh, content warning. So if you go to watch the uh, the Godfather, uh, there are some scenes of violence, um, and it's it, it's it's. Uh, and, it's and, an understatement. That, okay. There are some scenes yes. of non-violence. <laughs> 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 so, uh, yeah, so it's interesting to me because when i watch this movie it doesn't have the volume of violence that you know that you know an iron man movie has or the avengers or something like that right i mean there's there's not you know non-stop action that you would see in war movie uh say you know like saving private ryan or something like that i actually think the incidents of violence are fairly few all things considered, but they're so shocking and vivid that they leave an impact, right? They, they, you know, they're sudden, they're explosive. You know, when uh, Apollonia is blown up, right, uh, in the car, it's this shocking, you know, thud. Uh, even when Brando dies at the end, I noticed this uh, watching it this time, he falls down and dead in his garden. And even the way his leg sort of flicks, you know, and, and you know, kicks, as a last gesture, there's even a violence to that almost and a, a shocking quality to it. Right? And I also think that, that the um, deaths itself are more loaded, like it's vengeance is a kind of the emotion attached to it. it. It's more personal, you know, and in other movies, it's like more shooting figures. I don't know, it's different. Right? Yes. And I think, again, something about the, the suddenness of action, whether it be violence or whether it be the explosive nature of characters, is representative of, of eights as well. Okay? So, for example, when, when Vito is talking to um, 
Johnny Fontaine early in the movie. He's listening to him and he's gentle. And then all of a sudden he kind of jumps up and starts mocking him and smacks him in the face and all these sort of things. Right. So there's Act like this, a man. Act like a man. Yeah, you know, this, this explosive. <laughs> he loses it. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's this, there's this explosive quality, and, and, and Michael is the same way. I mean, Michael is cold and aloof and controlled, and I've heard people make the argument that Michael is a, an Enneagram type 5, and just, no, no. I mean, no, he's not. No. Um, and that explosiveness that we see in Michael is certainly indicative of the 8, so. Cultural impact, right? I mean, holy cow. Uh, very few movies have had the cultural impact of The Godfather. I would think maybe Star Wars is one that I would say had kind of the same long-lasting impact. Right? I mean, the, the, the lines, the quotes from The Godfather, there are few movies that have as many quotable lines, right? Uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli, we're going to the mattresses, it's not, not personal, it's only business, and the ultimate, you know, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Um, I think the only movie that I can think of that has more quotable lines would be Casablanca. We see a lot of lines there. Um, it cemented the concept of the anti-hero. Again, there were anti-heroes in movies prior to that, but this really set set the standard for the idea of the anti-hero. And it spawned countless imitations, right, and influences. Everything from um, The Sopranos to uh, Goodfellas to even The Simpsons has ongoing kind of gags related to The Godfather. It just, permeates uh, culture in so many ways even even there's i think i've told you that there's a um a movie for kids uh Zootopia, that has a scene of the <laughs> of the godfather <laughs> inside the movie it's yes funny yes hammer um so being in egypt um uh, how were you originally exposed to the godfather do you remember uh, i i think um uh, related to a certain social class, I didn't see the the Godfather impacting uh, uh, culture in Egypt that much as much as people maybe understanding English and speaking English and watching movies. So I I wouldn't say it, it had the same impact like um, uh, the movie that we have discussed before, uh, Saturday Night Fever, or uh, probably Scarface. Uh, some of these movies. Uh, Godfather did not have that uh, depth of an impact. So, um, and I haven't seen movies in Arabic that are uh, based on the same theme or something like that. Maybe there are a couple of movies that are based on Scarface, but not not Godfather. I think it's too complicated, and maybe it's uh, too complex. I mean, in terms of the script itself and uh, and the length of the uh, movie, in, in order to do something uh, similar to that. So, but but for me, I mean, uh, I I love the movie. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if it, if it's personal or or some somehow culture, but I think it's more personal. How about you, Maria Jose? Funny, I keep bringing this up, but uh, maybe it's because we keep using historical movies. But uh, <laughs> now, uh, so <laughs> because I wasn't born when it came out, <laughs> so I, what I can see is that. There's something similar to what Tamar was saying regarding the language. Even when you see it translated, the translation is not always the same and it's not accurate. So 
uh, all these phrases, all these things that uh, have permeated culture in English are kind of there, but it's not as strong. And, and because I was, it has been there since I was born, it's hard to see the impact because it's been there from the beginning for me. Right. But when I look back and every time I watch the movie, I can see that there are things in culture that have, uh, have been adopted because of the movie. But it's not as strong as you're describing there. Make a good point um, about Scarface, right? So Scarface, so The Godfather was released in 1972. Uh, I was nine years old when the movie came out. Uh, Scarface was, um, uh, was released in 1983. I believe again with Al Pacino, very different character. I mean, he was. Uh, whereas I think that uh, Michael is a preserving eight in The Godfather. I think we all agree on that. Uh, very much a transmitting eight in Scarface, a very different character. And Scarface came out as uh, rap music, hip hop was starting to become popular in the U.S., and so he became uh, sort of a, a cultural. Tony Montana became sort of a cultural touchstone in the early days of rap music, which I think really cemented that character uh, as a more popular cultural figure in a lot of other parts of the world. So I was only nine when the uh, Godfather hit the movie theaters for the first time. And so I did not get to see it originally on the uh, on the big screen. But about five years ago, it played in, a, in an art house uh, repertory theater near where I live. And I thought, I've got to go see The Godfather on the big screen. I mean, there's no way I cannot go see it. So I made plans to do it. And then I started thinking, you know, my sons may never get the chance to see The Godfather on the big screen. And maybe I should take them. And I have four boys. And my oldest two at the time were 10 and 12 years old, uh, which is probably a little too young to see The Godfather on the big screen, right? So, uh, uh, so, but I or wanted any other to... screen. So it's it, it's funny. I'll tell a quick story. So before I went to see it, I, I went to one of these parent rating guides, and it said, you know, to kind of list, you know, what's wrong, and they list how many profanities there are and how many scenes of violence, and then it says, you know, naked breasts for two and a half seconds or something, and then it says cruelty to animal as the final uh, thing, which I always thought was a you know, interesting way to point out issues with the movie. Uh, yeah, so my uh, 10 and 12-year-old sons probably um, had kind of a traumatic first experience with The Godfather, but they have grown to love the movie since then. First scene that we want to talk about is the opening scene of the movie. And uh, Maria Jose, why don't you describe the opening scene? Yeah, so it's Connie's wedding and the mafia. It's what the custom is that the godfather or the father of the bride has to respond or concede every request from the people who attend. And so there's the scene with the undertaker who wants justice and uh, it's requiring a favor. And it's all about, it's like a dance uh, with the godfather, with him not, they're not clear about the uh, situation. He's trying to describe what he wants without being straightforward, saying that he wants someone killed or taken rid of, getting rid of. And um, the Godfather is more kind of um, responding in a way that it's like, 
why haven't you why didn't you come to me before why don't you call me godfather and why don't you do this so it's all about stating his position of power uh, in front of the undertaker and finally he just kneels down and kisses his um, ring and it's all about okay you have the power but please do what i need you to do yeah, and so there's um, again a lot of the themes of the Type Eight, right? There's this, oh. there's this power and control and dominance. There's this, like we talked about before, is that uh, you know I, I've got to feel you out whether you're worth the contribution of my time and energy. Okay, well, whether I can <laughs> trust you, will I be betrayed by you, or can I trust you when I need you? Yeah, so there's the loyalty test here. Yeah. That comes and he didn't make it easy for him. No, he didn't make it easy. <laughs> and, 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 in fact, you know, and this is one of the things that's uh, so striking about the scene is that when he tells him, you know, oh, I'm going to do this favor for you, right? And, um, you know, someday, and that day may never come, I may call on you for a favor, right? Uh, but until that day, just consider this act of justice a gift on the, you know, the, the, my, the, my daughter's wedding day. And you're feeling like, Oh, this poor guy, you know, this poor guy, what did he get himself into now, right? And so, again, it's that feeling of menace that permeates the, the movie. And I think, too, you know, again, when it comes to AIDS, people often feel uncomfortable with them, right? This idea that, you know, I don't want to poke the bear. I don't want to take the wrong step. And, you know, and they relate it to times that they've been abused in the past and, you know, by, by Ada's sort of character. So I'm curious about you guys' thoughts on that. I like very much the way he used the, uh, the terms friendship and respect. And it's like throughout the conversation that he's bringing his own definition for respect and friendship. It's more of a loyalty. It's more of a kind of respecting the rank rather than respecting uh, uh, the humanity inside and so on. And, and I think it's very much related to your question that uh, it, 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 it plays a dynamic that uh, this is a power dynamic and, uh, and you have to join the system of my power dynamic in a certain way. Otherwise, I'm not ready to get you inside the system and really uh, do whatever you uh, want to do. So it's like there's a price to be part of my system. It's brilliant in really giving a snapshot of the whole movie in the very beginning. Even the opening line of the movie by Bonacera, I believe in America. This idea that America is an idea. Right? It's, it's a system of beliefs, and the reality doesn't meet those beliefs, right? It doesn't always meet the aspirations that it has. This idea of justice, right? That justice will be done, that there will be opportunity for people who work hard. And we find out that, as in everything in life, things are more complicated. I think this is a good point to point out again. Not all eights are murderers and uh, abusers and, you know, mafia dons. Uh, some of them are darn nice people, I've heard. So let's just keep that in mind. Rio, uh, did you want to add anything to that? Yes. So, so uh, really nice people, not all of them. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I agree, and I'm glad that you're making the point. So in that first scene or a first couple of scenes, it's when uh, Johnny Fontaine, the godson of Godfather, comes and when uh, he starts crying and what am I going to do and the godfather loses it 
And as I said before, he says, act like a man. It's like, I think the only scene where I saw him get really frustrated at someone and shout. And, uh, and I've seen that in AIDS. It's like, don't come to me crying, you know? It's like, do something about it. Come on, be a man. So it's, it's a good portrayal of how AIDS react to that. Because we're talking about uh, kind of the Godfather and Sonny and Michael, but it's the movie, the whole movie is so eightish. So when, when uh, the, the scene with, the, with Walt, the uh, movie, I don't know, director, producer, and where that's a power play as well. I mean, he knows that Johnny is the best actor for that movie, but he just doesn't want him there. and will not allow it and well he has to but (laughs) uh, (laughs) after he gets a gift in his bed but so everywhere it's it's kind of a power play and trying to demonstrate where i fit or what's my position and it's above the rest i I read something i'm not sure if it's right or wrong but that that was not the originally planned opening scene. There was another opening scene and somehow there was oh, a really? struggle between Coppola and uh, Paramount because the scene, the way it is, it's very, I mean, uh, the rhythm is not that high. And at the same time, is moving into the wedding itself that uh, uh, shooting this wedding with this way, it's very expensive uh, somehow and very complicated in terms of technicality of shooting. And I guess Coppola has just won the game and made it really a great opening scene. I'm not yeah. sure if this story is right or wrong, but uh, it's yeah. something that I read. So yeah. it's a power struggle game as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly right for for the soul of the movie. Yeah, and um, so just a couple of uh, again other historical points for you know movie nerds out there. The Johnny Fontaine character is based on Frank Sinatra and his desire to be in the movie from here to eternity. Uh, Sinatra was considered to be washed up at the time. They thought his voice was shot, and uh, he ended up winning an Academy Award for uh, his role in Spirit uh, of Eternity. And um, Sinatra was famously mixed up with uh, gangsters, right? Uh, he was kind of a hanger-on, and they didn't really take him that seriously. And in fact, he wanted his gangster friends to murder Mario Puzzo for basing this character on him. And they, you know, they just told him, you know, get out of here. Don't be such a you know, clown. Uh, because they were quite happy with the way that the mafia was portrayed in this movie, right? It <laughs> makes them look like sort of heroic characters. So uh, Sinatra did not get his way ultimately. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. 
Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. The theme number two is the meeting with Solozzo or the Turk, the Al Lettieri character that we talked about before. Solozzo plays a drug dealer uh, who is known as being good with a knife, but only in matters of necessity and honor or something to that effect. Okay, so he doesn't just stab people randomly. He stabs people who deserve it, apparently. But he wants the family to get into the drug business. And um, so he has a meeting with uh, Vito and Sonny, Fredo, uh, some of the other uh, people working for uh, Vito, as well as Tom Hagen. And uh, he lays out the proposal and Vito turns him down, which kind of gets the action of the rest of the movie going. He doesn't want to get into it and think that the drug business it's always interesting to me because we typically, and we're going to have to find a new movie clip to show during our trainings, but that's one that we have always shown as a, a way of trying to guess a character's Enneagram type, right? Uh, I'm always amazed at how many people get it wrong who see him as kind of a nine-ish character and a preserving character because he talks about family and so forth. So the two of you, I'm curious, what what makes this character, particularly in this scene, a good example of a type eight. So, so to me is trying to, trying to feel powerful by understanding the landscape. So Tom comes with a lot of information about the Turk and about what he wants, who he works for, who he's uh, an ally to. From it. So that's how Vito reads or uh, tries to understand the situation and make up up his mind and and then the reasoning for declining the offer is more about losing power so on the one hand he could get power because getting into the drug business could make him be positioned in front of the other families in a new business but but then he would lose all these politicians and the police and all the influence that he has and so it's not about being a coward or tr- trying to feel peaceful or anything like that. He's just measuring how much power am I going to win versus how much power am I going to lose? And then makes up his mind. Cameron, you mentioned the, uh, the brushing of uh, yeah. Solotto's leg. Uh, yeah. Say more about that and just his demeanor, I think. Yeah, let, let me say something before that that will uh, lead to it. I, I see what was not said in this scene is more than what was said. I mean, if you look at the details of the scene, all the details of the scene, it really expresses power, uh, the power of uh, Don Corleone himself, that it shows not, not necessarily in him, but in all the people looking at him. It's like understanding how powerful he is whether in the small discussion in the beginning with Sonia and Tom Hagen, or in the larger discussion where Solotso came in and the other members of the family are sitting around. It's like everyone is really understanding the amount of power of Don Corleone in these two meetings. And also the way he moves, and here we'll come to to your question, the way he moves, even when he changed his seat from a place to the others, it's like everyone is silent and waiting for the move that he's making. And then 
brushing uh, the the pants of uh, Solozzo, it's like giving a message. I mean, you like uh, you're, you're just a small kid, so listen to me. It's like uh, putting uh, things into perspective here. So you think you're coming with an opportunity. You think that we are joining forces, so we are equal in power. No, it's not the case. Let me tell you what is the case. So it's it really even when Sony started to talk and he. He's shutting him off in, in a very smooth way and a very gentle way, but very powerful way at the same time. So, and immediately, Sonny, the, this reckless guy, became silent. He couldn't really resist. So I think it was, I mean, as we always say, it's, it's a master scene. And Coppola did a great job here, is showing the power into small details in what is not said more than what was said. It's, it, it brings up for me this idea of gravitas, right? This, you know, gravitas is just a weight that some people have, right? When when they're in the room, you feel them, okay? And certainly Vito has that, okay? And I think Michael and, and Sonny have it as well, not quite as, you know, defi- you know, not quite to the extent or as in a refined way as Vito does for sure. Uh, but he just, he controls the room, right? Even without saying anything, even without doing anything. And there are these great reaction scenes that we see, right? When when Sonny does speak out of turn, and and the camera goes from Clemenza to uh, Tessio to Solozzo, and just this, and Tom Hagen, and just this look on their face of, oh boy, you know, and uh, you know, boy, he screwed it up now, and there's going to be consequences to pay, and so forth. So it's it's a beautiful scene. I think, too, for me, this scene also points, again, to this idea of amorality, right? One of my favorite lines from the whole movie happens in this scene where Vito, as he's dismissing Solozzo, says, look, it doesn't matter to me what a man does for a living, right? As long as you're, you know, you're, uh, you know, your uh, ends don't uh, interfere with mine, right? And so it's this idea that I'm not judging you. Right. I, I don't care that you're a drug dealer and you're going to ruin people's lives. That's not my business. My business is my business. And you're going to interfere with my business, which is the reason that I'm not doing this. And that amorality even is captured, I think, really well. You go from in the scene that you mentioned, Tamara, where right before this, where he's talking to Tom and to Sonny about the Turk. The immediate scene before that is the horse head scene. Right. And it ends with Walt screaming and screaming. Right. And then it just cuts to Marlon Brando's face. And he's just sitting there so calm and so peaceful, knowing that this guy just woke up with a, you know, a dead uh, head, uh, a horse's head in his bed. Right? And what does he say to Tom? He says, Oh, Tom, you're not too tired, are you? You know, and Tom says, No, I got some sleep on the plane. <laughs> you know, so it's just this, you know, it's this, this, I don't know. It's business. this, uh, it's what? Go ahead. It's, it's business. business. Yeah, absolutely. It's business. All right. Great. I mean, a metaphor that I see in this movie that represents the, the eighth power, which is uh, very similar to the lion when most of the time the lion was, would be sitting doing nothing but. The whole jungle understand that there's power there and we shouldn't mess with it. <laughs> right. So, right. So somehow this scene like represent that. So the third scene that we wanted to talk about is, uh, so, you know, as we know from the story, uh, because Vito turns down Solozzo, Solozzo says, well, the only way for me to get what I want is to try to kill Don Corleone. So they do attempt to kill him. It, it's unsuccessful, but Vito ends up in the hospital. Michael decides that in order to finish their revenge, he is going to kill 
Spilozzo and the police captain who punched him in the face earlier in the scene. So they have the scene in the restaurant, very famous scene. And again, a scene of striking and sudden violence. Um, and then Michael has to flee to Italy for some time until things die down. Okay? And so while there, Michael is walking through the countryside uh, one day with his two bodyguards, and he comes upon a young woman amongst uh, a group of children and women. And there is this immediate chemistry between the two of them. It's referred to as the thunderbolt scene. Maria Jose, tell us what else happens in that scene. They all see that immediate connection, the bodyguards and the, the women who were with her, with Apollonia. And so they were on their way to the village of uh, Colleone, and they go up the mountain and they get there and they start talking to, they, they stop at the kind of bar or restaurant. Uh, they start talking to the owner, asking for this girl. So they were making fun, not making fun, but laughing about it. They were it describing and, a voluptuous woman. Uh, yes, which yes. who happened to be his daughter. And then he yes. didn't like that so much <laughs> and got really offended. But although it could have ended there, Michael was really bold and just asked to talk to him and almost immediately uh, um, said that he wanted to court her and marry her. And uh, with all the respect, with the family observing and all of that. So he could handle the situation really, really well in a few seconds. Just knew what he had to do and went straight to kind of get what he wanted. Well, a few things that struck me upon rewatching that scene. One was just kind of the viscerality of experience, right? This, you know, sometimes people talk about eights and, you know, being body types, right? Which, you know, we don't really talk too much about, don't put a huge amount of um, emphasis on, but here you feel it, right? I mean, there's just this, there's this felt sense that we see in Michael, right? You can feel, even though he doesn't even blink, you can just feel something coming from him. Right? When he does go, as you said, th there's that decisiveness. He explains, "Hey, look, I'm, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm going to give you some information that could be very valuable to you, right? Uh, I'm wanted by a lot of people. I'm hiding here, and you know, in your country. And but you th could even that's kind of calculated. It's I'm telling you this to build trust, so that you trust me and you do what I want." Yes. It's not like in a naive way that I, he's sharing information that could be harmful or uh, to him. It's just all calculated. Yes, exactly right. Because once I've given you this information, only two things can happen. Either I kill you or you let me marry your daughter. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, that's a power play. It shows the, uh, the clarity of agenda that the eights would like to cut the chase and really get immediately he got immediately to the topic and this is what i want and this is what i'm going to do and it's kind of direct talk it's not i mean no introduction so on this is exactly my agenda yeah. understanding that there were no men in town he knew already that <laughs> all true. men had died <laughs> so he had everything to win you know <laughs> Also, also the, the level of self-confidence that has been shown by Al Pacino in this scene is really also representing the self-confidence of the eight. I mean, is I mean, went and really, I mean, he does not know this uh, 
culture of these people there and so on. You know, he's chased by others and who wants to kill him. And he really very, I mean, self-confidently uh, proposing in a very direct way. Yeah. Uh, so, it, and even the so language that he chooses to speak, he knows that he's not completely comfortable or fluent in Italian. So he asks to be translated so that he's not in a position of like inferiority, but still managing mm -hmm. to. You know, that's interesting because I hadn't thought of that before. And that, that's a really good example. I'm not going to blumble, you know, bumble my way through the language. And I am going to show that I'm so important that, you know, you're going to translate my words exactly as I say them sort of thing. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a nice move. I'll have to try that sometime. So <laughs> I think, too, one final thought on the Apollonia scene is that this shows the this kind of cements the transition or the maturation of Michael and his sense of who he is, right? Because, you know, he was never a timid sort of guy, but he didn't want to be in the family business. He was supposed to go straight. At the same time, he was a war hero, right? Um, you know, he was viewed as kind of the college boy and all that sort of thing. But he said, no, I'll go kill, you know, Solozzo. And so he was, you know, he was always pretty self-confident. But there's a there's a different air about him in this scene, right? A a kind of settledness that wasn't quite there earlier in the in the, in the movie. So um, yeah, and and it's interesting to me that although there was this look between them of like passion attraction there was the detachment as well and it's almost like it's not that i'm in love i mean i just saw the girl once but i need to get married and she's she looks good it, it feels like <laughs> business you know it, it, it's funny because this is sort of the lust of the eight again it's this object of desires i want that right it's when you know king david you know says about bathsheba in the in the old testament you know she looks good to me and so i want her so i'm going to send her husband off to be killed in the war or something right and uh, so it's just this idea but there is this sort of adding of a trophy quality that happens and th th you see that same sort of thing when he goes back for k after apollonia dies and he's back in the states for over a year and he just goes to her and he says uh, something like you know i love you and i want to be with you and i want to get married so come on let's go right it's, you know it's it's there's he's saying these words that could be very romantic but there's nothing romantic about them i'm giving you an order you know it's a declarative <laughs> it's not romantic right. at all that's right it's not quite framed as an order but it's understood as an order of this of is course. what's going to happen right? and i think that it's key to Eight. It's uh, speaking in a more declarative way. It's sometimes not the intention, but it just feels like that. I have a, a nine-year-old type A daughter, and she speaks like that as well. It's just declarative. Whatever they say, it feels like an instruction. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. 
A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Okay, so fourth and final scene that we're going to take a look at is the perhaps one of the, the most amazing sequences in, in all of film, uh, the baptism scene. Um, Michael agrees that he is going to be the um, godfather of his nephew on the same day that he's planning to kill the husband of this baby that uh, you know he's going to be the godfather of. And he is also going to exact his revenge on all of those who um, have proven to be enemies and who tried to kill his father. Um, a very operatic scene, right? I mean, the music in this, the organ music is way over the top. And there's this, uh, this juxtaposition of the ritual of the church with the ritual of killing. It's, you know, it's God and Satan fighting, you know, over the city of God, you know, in, in, uh, in real time. It's, it's a beautifully shot scene, and it's chilling, right? Because at the moment, you know, there's this organ buildup, and at the moment when the priest asks Michael if he renounces Satan, he says, I do renounce him. And then all of a sudden, they cut to these scenes of all these people being blown away, right? Yeah, that, that he's becoming the godfather of the baby, but he's becoming the godfather of the family at that yes. time. It's like two baptism in, in a exactly way. Exactly right. He's stating his position in a way that it's impossible to reject because he's just doing whatever he needs to do to be in power. Yes, absolutely right. So there's the, the literal baptism and the uh, metaphorical baptism. The, the baptism in the Christian tradition represents a rebirth. Right? It's being uh, reborn in a state of grace, uh, having our sins washed away by the, by the, uh, the waters. And, and, and again, Michael is moving into a life of sin. It's almost like a reverse baptism of this way, of any innocence that he had, any goodness that he had is uh, being washed away through these acts. And um, the amorality certainly uh, carries on. So again, this idea of vengeance uh, is just very, very critical in understanding the type 8. This is vengeance on steroids. It's a very extreme example. Uh, and it's also, I think, if you go back to the scene, uh, the last conversation with Vito, with his father, talking about where Vito saw, envisioned Michael being and as a governor or somewhere in power where people could not touch him. and. Now he's afraid that he's dying and he's kind of threatened by the other families. And Michael is like, don't worry, I'll take care of it. It's either I'll die or you'd all die. And that's what he did, kill them all. And in this, in this scene also, I saw a good demonstration of the connecting point at five where detachment is being really demonstrated in a very good way, where Michael is really not blinking, uh, an eye is really very calm, while all of these massacres happening all over the place, killing few pe few people and really changing the landscape of the mafia at the same time as, uh, as he's doing this very calmly. 
And even when they, uh, when his uh, men came and uh, one of his men came and just give him the final report on what happened, he didn't even blink an eye. It's like moving very smoothly by completely detaching from uh, the core of the events. So I, I, I see this a good demonstration of the dynamics at uh, between point eight and, uh, and five. And this is, again, why we call it the support strategy, right? This idea that that strategy can be used to reinforce our concept of experiencing or our experience of feeling the preferred strategy. So eights, you striving to feel detached in order to feel more powerful. You know, something we I, I forgot to say at the beginning of the session is that for us, it's all about the strategies. And it's not so much uh, good or bad. Um, it's about whether you use the strategy adaptively or maladaptively. And certainly throughout this movie, you have characters who are using the strategy of striving to feel powerful in maladaptive ways. Okay, uh, and this is a great example of that. And the strategy of striving to feel detached reinforces that. You mean nothing to me, so I think nothing of killing you is kind of the darkest aspect of eightness. Now, it's important to understand that that detachment can be used in very positive ways as well, because, you know, again, not all eights are going to kill people on the day of the baptism of their nephew. Some of them are pretty good people who will do good things in the world, but still that ability to detach emotionally can be very valuable the eight in doing good work as well yeah, i would say mario this adds to the power of the eight that i can really detach from emotion and really focus my power into certain direction to create certain results so so this is really adding whether uh, when it's uh, maladaptively or adaptively used it adds to the power in both ways absolutely Maria jose anything you would add to that no we covered that part of the eight um. <laughs> in great detail okay great yeah. so all right so uh so we'll wrap up with a few final comments now our podcast has not been quite as long as the godfather but we are coming to a close uh, so as as we said at the beginning and we probably won't get the chance to do this with all of the movies but we do see very vivid examples of all three subtypes of the enneagram type eight here uh, Vito is the navigating eight which uh, other people call uh, social, the, the lust and the desire for power related to, to influence, right? To influence over the group. And this is the theme, particularly if you watch Godfather 2, which tells the early history of Vito, he gained power through his connections to people, right? Through his ability to influence, his ability to do favors for people and have them be in his debt his ability to gather information and to know things that other people don't know. This is how the navigating eight tries to feel powerful. Sonny, played by James Kahn, is a uh, transmitting eight. Okay, This is the expressive, assertive kind of stereotype of the eight. And it was interesting, we did a, um, a training recently, you weren't there for this, Maria Jose, but one of the participants insisted that Sonny is a seven, which we get a lot when we have people doing an evaluation of that. But no, this is this is a transmitting a character. The Sonny is all about lust and violence. And, you know, people say, well, look how excitable he is. Yeah, he's excited about killing people. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that, that's sunny. The, again, not a very healthy example of the transmitting eight, but certainly an example of that. 
And then finally with Michael, we have the preserving eight. Again, we do believe he's type eight. It is all about striving to feel powerful, but it is control over resources. So the way I think about these three characters, um, it's, you know, Vito is exercising control over the group, power over the group. Um, uh, Sonny is exercising power over the other, the immediate other, right? The the object of his lust. And his lust is for experience, I think. Uh, whereas Michael is all about control of the resources, control of the operations, very methodical, very deliberate. You can see Michael being the um, head of operations for a large corporation or you know, the supply chain vice president in a Fortune 500, because that's the way his mind works. Comment on the uh, the three subtypes from you guys? Well, I, I would comment on the uh, on the way the, uh, the, the script uh, is written or the whole story. I mean, this is something that I always see in great movies. The more they are uh, following the lines as per the Neagram, or which is the real life, the more it's really a good movie because you can find consistency in the behaviors of the characters. It's like they keep on behaving in ways that is consistent. But I mean, other movies that they are not very well written, you would see behavior that are not really, that does not come from the same character, but has been put into different scenes and so on. So this is a very, uh, this is one of the movies that shows that in a very great way. I think in every training, we get a lot of people who think that Sonny is an eight, a seven, sorry, and Michael, it could, he could be a five. And in terms of Sonny, it's, there's no lightness. He's, <laughs> no. You know, no. he's excited about killing people, but he's not light. And he's not avoiding conflict or unpleasant situations he just goes straight forward and does whatever he wants so i mean those things to me show that he's an aide and not a seven even um the scene where clemenza is cooking right and he's you know maybe you know showing michael how to make the sausage for the for the gravy and he says you know you never know when you're gonna have to cook for 20 guys and sonny comes walking in and he says to them quit fooling around Right. I mean, they're cooking, you know, I mean, you know, this is they're not fooling around. They're cooking. But, you know, so you're, you're absolutely right. There is no lightness or, or fun to, to Sonny. And again, James Conn, I'm a big fan of James Conn's movies. Uh, and he almost always plays a transmitting eight. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, 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 if, and if we had to see if there is what the passion behind him or in him is, it's not gluttony. It's lust. No, it's absolutely lust. You're, you're right. You're right. Another great example of a transmitting a character by James Caan is the movie Thief, which I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of. And another one that came to my mind that I'm forgetting now. But uh, uh, anyway, James Caan, I'm yeah. like, oh, a transmitting a. And regarding Michael, I think when he starts showing up, when he says that he's going to shoot uh, Salazzo and the police officer, he's cool. I mean, I'm cold, but he's not detached. He's not just planning how to do it or strategizing he wants to go and do it he's not creating the plan for somebody else right no <laughs> and and he he's taking control and even if he's the youngest he's in charge closing thoughts here on the movie for me and it struck me i think probably most uh, watching it uh, this most recent time the other day that this idea of how 
it's always kind of um, folly to think that you can control everything, that you can dominate everything, because we are so interconnected. We're so dependent on each other as a species to feel like you can just be the top dog for any length of time is not a sustainable worldview. And so there's always this idea of, um, you know, apes need to learn to connect to people and they need to learn to be vulnerable and to be uh, collaborative and all these other sort of things. And whenever we're working with apes, we don't tell them that they need to do these things because it's just the right thing to do. We tell them that if you want to be powerful in the long term, you know, here's the way to go about it. Be nice to people, be kind, be gentle, be gracious, and so forth. That's what real power is. I think if the Godfather uh, series tells us anything, it's the folly of a limited interpretation of what it means to be powerful. How if an eight wants to grow, they really have to redefine that. Closing thoughts from you guys? After that, I think we need to close with that. <laughs> Very good. All right. So uh, thanks, no, guys. No, no, I'm, I'm saying that uh, was a good conclusion for the. Yes. I think, yeah. It's, it's All right. So next movie, another movie I'm really excited about is The Big Lebowski. Yes, uh, uh, one of my other favorite movies. So we'll be talking about The Big Lebowski and Enneagram Type 9 in the next episode of The Enneagram in a Movie. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. You've been listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the podcast, we ask you to go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review. Visit us at awarenesstoaction.com and follow Awareness to Action on social media.